You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'll invite you to return to Genesis 28. We'll serve as our text this morning. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Genesis 28, verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paden Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paden Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paden Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Malaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and nothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us, preserving it for us, giving us this accounting and the record of this story. And Father, we we want everything, Father, that you intend for this word. We pray, O Father, that by way of the Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts, that we would learn and we would come to know the, the, the essence of what you are desiring to teach us And that, Father, you would apply that to our hearts. And that, oh, Father, you would change us uh, through that application, through your word. Work in our hearts, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I am so thankful for uh, chapters and diversification of the scriptures. I mean, imagine if we didn't have uh, like chapter 28 and no verses. Uh, This morning I would say, okay, everybody um, get Genesis out. And I need you to turn to the sentence that reads, uh, then Isaac called Jacob, uh, fish around until you, could you imagine how long it would take us all to find a place? You know, I'm so thankful for that. But that having been said, sometimes it, it does sometimes get in the way of us seeing the flow. Sometimes we have a tendency to kind of check out between chapters and we don't actually see the flow. And we always need to be mindful that we have put these chapters and verses in the Bible uh, and they're needed, they're necessary, they're, they're, they're helpful. Uh, but in this particular case, I really, uh, in many ways, I kind of wish that verse that chapter 28 was above verse 46. But that having, that having been said, um, you know, there's other times when I wish 28 is right where it is. Verse 46 of chapter 27 is a transitional verse. Um, but for the, for the sake of this morning, I think we ought to back up maybe even to verse 41, especially for, I don't know if there was, if there was a, maybe a couple of us who weren't here last week. Uh, in verse 41, there we read that Esau hated Jacob. Now, why did Esau hate Jacob? Well, last week we looked at the story. Uh, what took place? Well, uh, Isaac decided that he was going to bless, uh, was going to pronounce this covenant blessing, if you will. And even though he knew the clear uh, revealed will of God that it was the younger son that was to receive the blessing, that it was Jacob who was to receive the blessing. Nevertheless, Isaac was determined to bless his older son Esau. And really, in accordance with the customs of the day, that was pretty much the custom. It was always the oldest son who received the blessing. But God had revealed his heart and his will to this family. And it was very clear that the younger was to receive the blessing. Namely, Jacob was to receive the blessing. And I think that's why Isaac's sneaking around doing it in the inner chamber of his tent. Uh, This was something that was to be done publicly, not something that was supposed to be done in secret. And, of course, Rebecca overhears Isaac's intentions, and she whistles immediately for Jacob. Your father's about to bless Esau. Here, do what I command you. Now, what does Rebecca have Jacob do? Uh, has him pose as Esau and go in and lie repeatedly to his father, acting as if he's... It's, it's, it's just, it, it really... Genesis 27 is a low point, and it's a point where we really see the dysfunction of this family, don't we? As uh, one of the things I pointed out uh, last week, is that as you begin to study this chapter, you begin to forget, wait, whose house are we talking about here? It's Isaac's house. It's almost hard to believe. Uh, Isaac has not, uh, again, I've said many times through the study of Genesis that we're not given these chapters so we can spend 45 minutes slamming the patriarchs. That's not the, that's not the intention. Uh, but here we do see uh, not the best of spiritual leadership going on here, is it? Um, really? And we're going to see it again in chapter 28. Well, Jacob is all too happy to go in and be the deceiver and the cheat. And he goes in and he, he plays the role of deceiver and cheat. And he gets the blessing, and Esau finds out about it. And Esau has murder in his eyes. And that brings us to verse 41. Now, what is Esau's intentions? His intentions are to kill Jacob. 
Now, again, Rebecca finds out about it. Rebecca hears about it. And then, you know, there's an application right there that really, contrary-wise to what we might think, not a lot gets past mom, does it? You ever notice that? I mean, I know as I've grown up that I have discovered mom knew about a lot of things I didn't think mom knew about. <laughs> Some of those things weren't very comfortable. Um, nothing escapes Rebecca, does it? Um, she finds out, she calls for Jacob, and she says uh, to Jacob, you need to scram. You need to go to my brother's. Stay with him for a while. Verse 44 until your brother's fury turns away. Verse 45, until your brother's anger turns away and he forgets what you have done to him. <laughs> forgets what you have done to him. Should, should read, forgets what we have done to him, but it's what you've done to him. <laughs> then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I bereft you? Uh, be, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And then we get to verse 46, and as I've said, this is a transitional verse. You know, Rebecca goes to Isaac, and she says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Now, what is that all about? Now, you may recall from the end of chapter 26, and if you look, if you turn back to chapter 26 and you look at verses 34 and 35, there we're told that when Esau is 40 years old, he takes two, not just one, but two Hittite women for wives. And we're told in verse 35 that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So here is a, a thorn in their side, and Rebekah comes to Isaac. And it's interesting that, she, I mean, we have no record of her coming to Isaac and saying, do, I, Isaac, do you realize what Esau has intentions to do to Jacob? And we don't have any record of that. Now, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean she didn't do it. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard people really kind of come down and, and speak as if Rebecca never did that. I don't know if Rebecca did that or not. Um, it appears, I mean, from our testimony that she never did. Uh, and if that's the case, then we've got some serious communication problems here. And I think we can conclude from the rest of what's going on here that there are some serious communication problems in this marriage and, of course, there's a lesson for us there. There's application there. Maybe Isaac was one of those guys that she just, you just couldn't talk to. You know, that's a possibility. Um, you know, sometimes in, uh, in, in marriage counseling, people will come and, and uh, they'll, they'll want to talk about communication problems, and you begin to talk with them, and it becomes clear that really neither party wants to make any changes. They just want to complain. I would say that's probably the majority of the cases, actually, that at least I've been involved with. And I'll just say to both of them, listen, when you're ready to make a change, give me a call. But right now, you're wasting my time. And you're wasting your time. You know, com if complaints can make progress, you guys should be, like, top of the list. But, um, you, you know, complaining like that and grumbling like that is cancerous. It's very can And it's, 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 listen, I'm not doing them a service by sitting and listening to them vent like that. Don't think that you're doing anyone a service that way. It's cancerous. You can, you can, there has to be repentance. You know, repentance is what repairs relationships. There's got to be repentance. And it doesn't take a whole lot of counseling uh, sessions in order to lead people to repentance. And if they're going to repent, they'll repent. It might, it might not be today, but maybe it'll be later. 
Uh, but that's what it takes. Now, sometimes you'll meet with a couple and you have one couple, you have one party in the, in the relationship, whether it be he or she, who does desire to change and is doing everything they can to change, but they have another party that's not willing. Now, if that's the case, there's only so much progress that can be made in the, in the marriage unit per se, but there's still lots of hope for the person that wants to change. And sometimes... Sometimes they think, you know what? I can never flourish unless he does this, or I can never flourish unless she does it. That's not true. Your grace and your flourishing is not predicated on the activity and behavior of another person. If it was, there'd be no hope for any of us. You can flourish in the midst of even the worst of those relationships. And maybe this is the case here. Maybe this is what Rebecca does is we're going to see actually is very clever. And it's, it's actually, it's really brilliant. I, I just want to be careful to commend it because it appears that we've got some pretty deep-rooted marital issues here. And I, I use the opportunity just to point it. Communication is so important in a marriage. And really, in terms of the church and the people of God, there should be no marriages among us where there's a party unwilling to change. You follow me? I give you two examples. You got he or she, neither one wants to make changes. Second example, one party wants to make changes, the other one doesn't. But in the church, there should be only one type of marriage where both are willing to make changes as changes are necessary. Amen? That's the only option. That's the only option for us. Well, Rebecca goes to Isaac and she says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, what is going on here? Why is it so important? I mean, we could come up with a lot of reasons why uh, Rebecca might not want one of these Hittite women to be Jacob's wife and We've already seen there's favoritism here, and you know maybe maybe none of them could, you know, could add up for her Jacob. We could go in those directions, but let's not right now. Let's just think this through. What would happen? Esau has already married, has already been married into the the Canaanites, into the Hittites, if you will. Now, what happens if Jacob does the same? What is going to happen to the peculiarity of Abraham's line? They're going to quickly become dissolved into the Canaanites very fast. And that's the whole point here. That is why, that is what, I think that is really what Rebecca is pointing to. And then when we get to chapter 28 and verse 1, we see that Isaac calls Jacob. Isaac responds. Isaac is now coming to action, but Isaac should have already been coming to action. He's coming to action prompted by his wife. Listen, fellas, we're called to lead. Um, This is not a good example here. I'm not like wanting to take opportunities to slam Isaac. I intend to meet him one of these days in in heaven, and I don't want him to say to me, hey, about that sermon, I've I've listened to some pastors talk about Abraham, and some of them are like, one of these days you're going to meet them. They're holier than you are. <laughs> um, but the leadership here, it, it, I, I think in many ways we're given this example of what not to do. Fellas, we're to lead our, our wives. We're to lead them spiritually. I've met men 
over the years, and they have said, on a couple of occasions, they've said things like this to me. They're like, oh, well, you know, my wife's the one that knows the Bible. She knows the Bible. She's, she's, she's the Bible expert in the family. And I think to myself, and sometimes I've even said, why, is that, why aren't you the expert in the family? Because what are these guys doing? Just letting her do all this studying, letting her do all this. What are they going to have to? What are they doing? They're supposed to be leading. Listen, man, you're the most influential person in your family, especially with your kids. Tammy and I did ministry in the East End for a few years over there, and the dysfunction over there was just—it was just—it um, was terrible. And a lot of these children had a lot of hatred towards their fathers because their fathers weren't there, or their fathers were abusive, or their father was this, or their father was that. But I could tell you one thing. Their father was very, and always, without exception, very influential in their lives, even when he wasn't present. One thing you dare not do is suggest anything ill about their father, and they would turn on you in two seconds. And God has made it that way. That's the way God has made it, you see. We have all of this, all of this influence on our children that we don't realize. Now, this influence can be used for good or this influence can be used for bad. You can, you can lead your children in the wrong way and use that same power of influence to lead them down the wrong path, uh, or you can use that influence uh, for uh, God's glory and lead them in the right path. And it might not always seem like you have as much leverage as you do, but you, you have a lot of influence in your family. And we're going to see this here. We'll see how Esau is influenced by Isaac's actions here in a few moments. Notice that Isaac calls Jacob, and he blesses him, and he directs him and says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. He gives him instruction in verse 2. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, it's interesting that when it was time for uh, Isaac to be married, Abraham had a trusted servant, and he had the trusted servant go off and procure a wife. I didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to go anywhere. He just waited for his wife to show up. Uh, here, Isaac is showing, for whatever reason, he is sending Jacob alone. Um, but notice what takes place in verse 3. Isaac says to Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now, what is so, what is so amazing about that? What is, ama what is amazing about that is that in the last chapter, we saw that Isaac was dead set on giving the blessing to Esau. He was trying to thwart the hand of God. And then all at once, God showed his sovereign hand. And once God showed his sovereign hand, verse 33, we're told Isaac trembled. He trembled very violently. And this was a change of heart back in verse 33 for, for Isaac. And Isaac, he gives us a hint to that because he says, I have blessed him. I've blessed who? I've blessed Jacob. And yes, he shall be blessed. And then when we get to chapter 28 and verse 3, here we see that Isaac's had a heart change. And now he's pronouncing the Abrahamic blessing upon, uh, upon Jacob. He says, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourings. And then he sends Jacob on his way in verse 5. Now, when we get to verse 6, we see that the scene changes. And Esau 
saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paden Aram to take a wife from there. Now, here's where we see the brilliance and cleverness of Rebekah, I think. Uh, not, I, 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 again, it's not all to be commended. I want to be careful when I say that. It's not all to be commended. There's, I, 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 don't, I don't think we want to take the whole thing. But let's not throw the whole thing away either. Because notice that Esau is watching his father. Oh, how would it have looked if Jacob would have just fled in the night? Esau would have thought he's in control. That would have empowered him, wouldn't it? This is really clever on Rebekah's part. Well, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paden Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him and he directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Verse 7, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to pay Naram. So here, this is the second thing we see, that here uh, in Esau's eyes, he's seeing that Jacob is leaving to go get a wife from his uncle's family and that he is being directed by his father Isaac. So he's seeing that his father is directing this thing. In verse Eight, so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, there we have to almost giggle and laugh. I mean, is this guy just starting to wake up to that fact? I mean, if he is, he's duller than a bag of hammers, is he not? I mean, come on. Um, how could he not know? How can you not know these kinds of things? But he does appear to be... Uh, qu- quite a slug, and I don't, I don't have to worry about him taking me up in heaven about this. I can say whatever I, whatever I want. He's not going to clobber me in heaven. So uh, he seems to be um, just so completely aloof. And you don't have to look very far to find Esau's in our culture, do you? Just, you know, life is about a six-pack in the ball game. You know, no matter what you say to him, life is about a six-pack in the ball game. And heaven is a six-pack in a, a ball game, you know? Um, huh. We had a term for that in seminary. We called them Joe Six-Pack. That was, Joe, you know, when we talked about Joe, we, in apologetics class, we would talk about Joe Six-Pack. What do you do with Joe Six-Pack? And the conclusion we came to is just about virtually nothing you can do with Joe Six-Pack, you know? His life is about a ball game and a six-pack of beer. The, 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 the sight is so low. I mean, it is so low. It's like the pulse of this thing is so low. It's like you can't even hear the pulse. Of course, we know that spiritually speaking, it's dead. Uh, necron means dead. Uh, it's so low that there's like no pulse whatsoever. Uh, what do you do with that? Here's Esau. He's waking up, I guess, to the fact that his Hittite... Um, girlfriends and then later wives do not please his parents. So what does he decide to do? Look in verse 9. He went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, a daughter of Ishmael. It's like, <laughs> hello, Esau. Now, let's quit picking on Esau for a moment. You might be thinking, hey, I'm not picking on Esau. You're the one picking on Esau. So let me quit picking on Esau for a moment. And let's just think about what's being in view here. This really is the anatomy of the unbelieving heart. We'll see it a little bit more here as we go on, but this is how, like, if God wouldn't have intervened in every one of us, this is how our hearts left to themselves would think and reason, and this is the kind of stuff we do, isn't it? What's he doing? He's jumping 
he's really jumping out of the skillet into the frying pan. I mean, Ishmael, who is Ishmael? That's, that's Isaac's stepbrother who was cast off, right? So he's, you know, he's going to leave the Hittites alone. He's going to go to the Ishmaelites in an effort to please his father. There's no mention of him trying to please God, is there? Only trying to please his father. Now, that takes us to the next scene, chapter or, uh, verse 10. Jacob leaves Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and we're told that he beds down for the night. And in verse 12, he dreams. He has this dream. And behold, in his dream, there's a ladder. It's a ladder that extends from earth uh, to heaven. We're told the top of it reached to heaven. We're told that angels of God are ascending and descending on it. And verse 13, the Lord stood above it. And notice what the Lord says. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, what is going on there? God has come to Jacob in the way that God had come to his grandfather, Abraham. We haven't seen that in a while, have we? Now, let, let's start with what Jacob saw. What does he, he saw a ladder. Scholars point out to us that it was probably more like a staircase, like a stone staircase, like the ancient ziggurats. Maybe you've seen pictures of those ziggurats on the Discovery Channel or wherever, um, where you have these stones, and these stones, these steps, they reach all the way up to the heavens. And the reader of Genesis might say, you know something? That sounds familiar. Like, like back in Genesis 11, didn't they decide that they were all going to get together and they were one accord and they're going to build a tower that reaches up to heaven? Yeah, Tower of Babel, right? They all spoke one language and they're all united and they're going to build this tower and this tower is going to reach to heaven and they're going to make a name for themselves, right? Wrong. What does God do? He shows himself to be so clever in that. All he has to do is just confuse their language. And they all fight and they take their toys and they go scatter in different directions, which is what he commanded them to do anyway. Fill the earth and rule the earth, fill it and multiply. No, it's like congregated Babel and build a tower. And what is the lesson there? The lesson there is God's not doing this to be mean. You know, he's not doing this so that he could look down at some kind of ogre and say, oh, look at them now, they're all fighting, you know, look at this. That's not God. What's God doing? He's trying, he's, he's saving them. He's doing a great, he's doing a great service to them by showing them that you cannot get to heaven on your own by the sweat of your brow. He's saving them a bunch of grief if they would but listen. You can't get to heaven by the sweat of your brow. But what are we to make of this ladder? Well, we have, we have a famous commentary on this passage written by a famous 
commentator who is right 100% of the time. Have you ever heard of such a commentator? His name is Jesus. He's right all the time. If you turn, keep your place in Genesis 28. If you turn to John chapter 1, beginning with verse 43, we'll look at the whole story because it's just a wonderful story. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and start to read. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that sheds some light on this, doesn't it? Very clearly, Jesus is making a reference to our text, isn't he? And what is Jesus saying to Nathaniel? It's in essence what he's saying is, hey, hey Nathaniel, do you remember the story of Jacob seeing a ladder, you know, the staircase, uh, Jacob's ladder? That's what you were taught in Sunday school. You know that? Well, here, I got something to say to you, Nathaniel. I am the ladder. I am the stairway to heaven. And it's the same thing that he says other places when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because there's only one ladder. There's only one stairway. And Jesus is the stairway. So no amount of bricklaying is going to get us to heaven. See, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's, that's how we get on the stairway. That's how we get onto the stairs. But we're never going to see a stairway unless the Lord intrudes into our life. And that's exactly what he has done here in the case of Jacob, isn't it? I mean, do you see the tremendous amount of grace here? Jacob is a lying, deceitful cheat. And I would guess that the pangs of a guilty conscience is resting on his heart, probably most acutely, as he took that stone and laid it under his head. Some scholars think he laid it beside his head, because the Hebrew could be translated that way. But either way, it doesn't matter. When does our sin tend to have a tendency to bother us the most? Isn't it at night before we go to bed? You ever notice that? Like when all of the things that can serve to, uh, to, uh, to uh, dull us and keep us busy from seeing what's going on, it's at night and we review and survey our actions throughout the day and we think, look what I did, look what I said, look what I, look at the other. 
It's probably at this moment when Jacob is probably feeling the most alone. He's heir of the promise, and he's out in the desert, and he doesn't even have a tent. God comes to him. He comes to this lying, deceitful chief, and he shows him the stairway to heaven. Now, in our economy, God does it this way. He comes to lying, deceitful cheats like ourselves, and he shows us Jesus. He shows us Jesus. Now, how does Jacob react to this? In verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. Now, Jacob is responding here. I think we can conclude Jacob is responding here with true worship. Why do I say that? Because there's joy in it. You can read joy in it. But there's also awesomeness in it. There's this fear of the Lord that's present in the midst of the joy. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you'd think to yourself, if someone explained to you, what's worship like? And they said, well, it's like being joyous and afraid at the same time. There's this kind of fear, this awe fear that overtakes you, but it's joyous. And everybody's like scratching their heads and say, wait a second, I can't reconcile joy and fear together? That's the awesomeness of God, though, isn't it? And it truly is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Where you're getting, a, you're getting, you're getting joy, and you're getting this, this fear in a positive sense of, Oh boy, what am I beholding? Look at who I'm beholding. I want to continue to behold. But I'm not sure I can continue to behold. But I want to continue to behold. What am I going to do? It's that kind of joyous uh, fear. I think Isaac's experiencing that too when he sees the hand of God, you know, and he's shaking. Jacob is in some way being awakened here. Now, we're told early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that had been under his head, that is in verse 18, and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, notice verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be... God's house, and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, what are we to make of this vow? And I'll tell you just from the start, there is, there's, there's, there's a debate about this. Uh, commentators and biblical interpreters are back and forth on this. And it really comes down to this, this conditional language that we have here in verse 20. Uh, notice the if you have the if. Um, it's kind of an if and then. If and then. Um, we have a then in verse 21. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, if and then is conditional language. What it means is if X takes place, then Y will take place and follow. And if we take that, if that is what Jacob is saying, 
then this, this is not to be commended. Um, we could say from the context of this, there Jacob is being that old bargainer again, bargaining with God. You know, okay, if God's going to give you all the things that you like and all the things that you want, then he's going to be your God, and you're going to give him the privilege of being your God. And that's, that's, the, that's the application that we'd make of that. And I want to say this. If that is what Jacob means, and if that is what he attends, then that is, that's where we need to go. Uh, we don't bargain with God. We don't want to say, oh, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this next jam, then you'll be my God. That is an ungodly thing to say. God is God either way. And you're not, like, doing him any favors by saying, oh, you get to be my God. You have nothing to bargain with. If that's what Jacob's doing, well, but I don't, you know, Spurgeon used to counsel his students and he used to say, listen, when you're talking about the saints, try to always give them the benefit of the doubt and things will go better for you. And I've tried to follow that over the years and, you know, that's pretty good counsel. Sometimes our minds will go to the worst and we'll think the worst and later we find out, no, it was nothing like what you thought. I would like to err on the side of grace on this one as many other commentary, commentaries do. Um, and I, we could take this another way. The if we could take as seeing. In other words, what Jacob is saying is like, oh my, if, oh, it, like he's overwhelmed. I think he is overwhelmed. I think he's very overwhelmed. And, he, and I think what he's saying is like, well, seeing that all of, seeing that you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna see me safely to, to, to Laban's and back, and that you're gonna clothe me and you're gonna provide food for me, uh, seeing that you're, go, you're always gonna be with me, seeing that this, you're my God. And I, I think that's what Jacob is doing here. I really do think that that's what Jacob's doing. Now, I, I don't think for a nanosecond that the old bargainer isn't done. But see, I think if we take this route, I think that, we, that, that, that the real lesson right there begins to emerge. That old bargainer is still alive and well. As we, as we continue through 29 and 30 and 32, especially when we get to verse 32, we're going to see that old bargainer is still there. But you know something? How did God come to each one of us? Did, he come, did God come and show you Jesus? and perfect you right then and there. Please say no. See, this is where we see the mercy of God, isn't it? What does he come to? He's coming to a liar and a cheat who's just freshly pulled off a heist, really. And he gives him this blessing. And he's done the same. If you're in Christ this morning, he's done the same thing to you. And he's done the same thing to me. And you know want to know something? That old Rick Anderson still raises his head. Especially when we first come to faith. We have no really idea or clue what has happened to us. That's why Jesus uses the language. He must be born again. You know, I, I, I didn't... I, listen, when, the day I was born, I was not writing essays in theology. I didn't do that that day. Um, I wasn't quite up for that yet. You have to grow. And the day when I came to faith in Christ, I come to faith in Christ with a lot of things that I know now are not even factual about God. 
And that's the same way you come, isn't it? Look at the grace and look at the mercy that God has been pleased to shed upon us. Look at the amazing patience that he does it in. I think that's the message here. You know, one word summary. If we, you know, one word on Genesis 28. uh, I have stairway. I have stairway. What would we, if we wanted to add some words to this, we could do, we could say stairway to heaven. That's pretty cool, right? That's not new. (laughs) I have it written down here. I wrote it down. I'm like, Mm, that, that's not new. We've used that one before. Um, maybe Jesus is the stairway. Maybe the stairway points to Jesus. It doesn't really matter. Just as long as we understand. There's one way. There's one way. There's one stairway. Jesus is the stairway. We don't deserve to be on that stairway. But God has put us on that stairway. And that stairway leads to heaven, doesn't it? And let's ask ourselves point blank this morning. Each one of you ask yourself, are you on that stairway? And if the answer is no, then I have a follow-up question. Are you insane? Why not? Because we have to be completely insane not to be on that stairway. To conduct ourselves like Esau is absolute insanity. Do you realize that? The world would have us believe we're insane. But that's nonsense. We need to boldly confront that. Boldly confront that. I was telling Tammy this morning as we were riding around this morning in the community, we saw a group of men uh, just wonderful, looked like they were having a little fellowship there drinking coffee. And and really, I'm I'm really sad that it didn't appear that they were going to church. And I told Tammy, I said, I wish that I had the courage that Richard Baxter had. Richard Baxter was one of those pastors. He went into Kidderminster, England, and he was bold as all get out, bold as a lion. And he would have probably pulled the car over, and he would probably went up to those guys and he'd say, hey, fellas, we're, you guys coming to, can't you get in the car and come to church with me? Why don't we do that? Well, we can't do that. That's not right. Why? Why don't we do that? Well, it's not social. What? It's insane. It's absolute insanity. It has everything to do with ourselves. Baxter took a lot of abuse. But do you know what the end result of his ministry was? It's a historical fact that practically that whole town came to faith under Baxter's watch. I think the hour is calling for us to be Richard Baxter's. I really do. There's a stairway to heaven, and we'd best be on it. Amen? Heavenly Father, O Lord, for the boldness to speak. O Father, for the love that is required to speak. O Father, before we can ever speak of these things, we must best be sure we are on the ladder, that we are on the stairwell. And that stairwell is Jesus. And oh, what a blessed staircase it is. For he helps our weak legs and our arthritic knees on each step and lovingly touches our our hearts that are faint in different places when the climb is 
just seems to be more than we can do. There Jesus is with us always. For you, O Father, told Jacob, I'm with you always. And Jesus tells us the same. He says the same thing to us. Lo, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, you're with us. You would be with us if we would stop and, and ask three men, come, would you guys like to come to church? In all likelihood, they might say no, but who knows what would happen. They might say yes. We won't know if we don't ask. Oh, Father, help us. Help us, oh, Lord. May we prize the stairway. May we prize Jesus. And may we see that this is a matter of life and a matter of death. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Come to the table this morning. As I've said many times, there's Donald. What we've just had is the gospel spoken, and here what we have is the gospel displayed.